Hallelujah. Father, today at your table we celebrate the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. We recognize that his death was sufficient payment for all of our sins and that through the shed blood of the Passover lamb, Christ alone satisfied in his propitiatory death the work that was necessary whereby man can be saved and his sin can be judged. We have experienced the atonement, the fulfillment of the Passover lamb in Christ our Lord. Lord, we have experienced a renewal of a relationship and a covenant that was once broken in Adam, restored in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And this relationship is described in terms of many things, among them the beautiful picture of marriage. Christ is our bridegroom in his sacrificial self-giving, ransomed for himself a bride from war, as it were, by paying the price that was needful to purchase her back from her captors. And so he has gathered for himself to the praise of his name, a bride from the unlikely clutches of death, hell, and the grave, and sin. Lord, we now rejoice because our merciful bridegroom Christ has redeemed us from the clutches of what once held us bound and captive. Now we are dead to sin and alive in him. I pray that through the proclamation of your word today, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit might be more evident in our lives. We long to shun and to reject and to leave behind more and more of the old life and that which attended our way in sin and to embrace and to understand and to uphold and proclaim and to apply more and more that which defines our life, newness of life in Christ Jesus. As we open your word, we pray that it would equip your saints to do exactly this, to live in light of the glorious reality of the sin-purchasing power of Jesus Christ's shed blood. We pray as we look into the mirror of your law that you would reveal to us sins to confess and repent of. And we pray that as we do so, that the reflection of Jesus Christ might be more readily seen in the hearts, lives, lips, decisions, lifestyles of your people, of your called out ones. We thank you, Lord, for the glorious hope that we have in Christ alone. I pray that you would grant us, Lord Jesus, stronger faith as we approach the means of grace this day. May you multiply the proclamation of your word bypassing the insufficiency of the proclaimer and the insufficiency of the hearer, that you might be glorified and that you might do a miraculous work, opening up our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our minds to comprehend the beauties of Christ proclaimed in his holy scripture. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. I encourage you this morning to turn in your scriptures to 1 Peter chapter 3. Today to attend our communion service and to prepare our hearts for the moment of the Lord's table, we open up the scriptures in 1 Peter 3 verses 1 through 7 to instructions regarding a human institution, in fact an institution furthermore ordained by God, participated in by humans, that institution is marriage. The aim of this morning's message is to realize the gospel opportunities presented in the marriage relationship. The title of this morning's message is Marriage for the Lord's Sake. 1 Peter 2.13 says the following, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him, and so on. In other words, there is a commandment, injunction, instruction, for the people of God to be subject for the Lord's sake to certain human institutions. And then Peter outlines three of them. We've covered two so far, civil government, servitude, and the third one this morning is marriage. 
So with that introduction, would you stand as you're able out of reverence for the Holy Word of God and listen as the scriptures are proclaimed in your hearing today. Today we bow before the authority and power of the proclaimed Word of God. We take heed to His Holy Scriptures by listening to 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Here is the Holy Word of the Lord. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning, adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Peter continues in this passage his instruction informing new believers in Asia Minor of the opportunities presented to the Christian through human institutions. The people of God in these five regions, uh, kids, anyone remember the five regions that Peter wrote to? Can you shout one out if you remember? Anyone remember the five regions that Peter was writing to? There was Pontus, yes, Galatia, and the others, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So just a little geographical background. Those five regions are within the greater Asia Minor territory, and here the gospel was expanding. Now these were regions that were not familiar with the terms of Scripture very much, and therefore when the gospel went to them, it came with a cultural shock, if you will, a culture shock. The ways and means of the scripture, the message of Jesus Christ, was a foreign uh, reality to the people, and the scriptures themselves would not be as readily understood. They weren't part of the, her the cultural heritage the same way they would have been in the Holy Land, as it were. Therefore, there was quite the conflict, quite the contrast in many cases, between the newly redeemed believers, between the newly converted Christians, and the surrounding culture. So this lays out a framework and a background and context for Peter's words. Therefore, he continues his instruction informing believers that they have opportunities presented to them in the way, by way of human institutions that when they interact with them in a biblical way can proclaim the gospel to their neighbors in unique and uh, interesting examples. And those three institutions that he has covered to this point are civil government, servitude, and marriage. He begins his counsel in this regard by encouraging voluntary submission as a general principle. Notes 2.13. Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. By the way, that's where we get the title of this morning's message. Uh, government for the Lord's sake or subjection to government for the Lord's sake is a calling of the people of God whereby they can capitalize on an opportunity to display the gospel through their honorable activity with respect to the social relationships around them. In a similar way, marriage. Not only does Peter call for 
people to interact in the, with their governing officials for the Lord's sake in respectable ways, but also with their masters for the Lord's sake in respectable ways, and also with their spouses in marriage for the Lord's sake, again, in holy and reverential and respectable ways. Counsel in this regard by or Peter counsels in this regard by encouraging voluntary submission. He says, be subject to the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Let me give a reminder that these instructions are qualified in their context. That, that is to say, the purpose of voluntary submission in the Christian calling is to glorify the Lord. It's also to put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It also recognizes that a government which glorifies the Lord punishes those who do evil and praises those who do good. So these instructions do not come without qualification. No, but we are nevertheless to see the opportunities presented before us as a means whereby we can proclaim hope in Jesus Christ by more than just a creed, also by activity and interaction in our society, in our respective communities. To, feature, uh, to do this, Peter encourages the church to feature honorable conduct and good deeds unto the glory of God, that they might be recognized as such in a pagan world. The apostle has given instructions accordingly regarding the institutions of civil government and servitude, and now in chapter 3 he adds marriage to the list. Marriage is the human institution of family and its formation, which provides a unique and powerful opportunity to display the gospel to an unbelieving world and even to an unbelieving spouse. Marriage, Peter says, is an opportunity to display sacrificial love, to display the mercy and grace, the character qualities that are encouraged and underscored in the gospel to a pagan world, to an area, a society, to a culture that does not share the worldviews of the Christian, and even more individually and personally, personally to an unbelieving husband or wife. The primary example, of course, is to an unbelieving husband, which we'll soon see. Um, Friday, we went down to Isanti County. My little brother Seth was married. So a bunch of us gathered for a ceremony outdoors in this vineyard area, and it really was beautiful, and the message was sound as well. It was a good message. In that message, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, minister reminded us of the narrative of redemption in the scriptures, which begins with a marriage. Uh, kids in the room, who were the first two people married in the Bible? Does anyone know? Uh, Adam, and Adam and Eve is correct. Therefore, in the beginning of the history of the human experience, we have marriage right in the opening chapters of the scripture. We're reminded in, this, in his message, uh, his marriage message on Friday, that not only does the Bible begin with a picture of a marriage, but it also closes with one as well. And perhaps we'll close on that uh, later on in our service, Revelation 19, 6 through 9, wherein the picture of the relationship of Christ and his bride is described as a groom to his, or as a bridegroom to his bride, the church, and there is a celebration, and that celebration is prefigured even in the communion table today. Thus, the testimony of God's purposes to save a people for his glory is proclaimed in the context of marriage terms, marital terms, from the beginning to the end of Holy Scripture. Marriage, by design, is intended to glorify the Lord. Jesus himself, we remember, in his ministry, chose in an, to inaugurate, to begin his ministry, his service 
to seek and to save that which was lost, his service to his heavenly father, by a miracle that took place, in fact, at a wedding in Cana. That is, Jesus took the opportunity of a marriage to display his glory, performing his first miracle by turning water into what, kids? Jesus turned water. Very good. So let us pay heed to the instructions of the Apostle Peter, even as we see them underscored in the ministry of Jesus and in the meta-narrative, which means big story of all of Scripture, understanding the signif- that marriage is significant to understanding God's purposes in and through his church. The Apostle helps us recognize that the institution of marriage presents a providential opportunity for gospel proclamation by the Christ-inspired conduct of believers loving their spouses to the glory of God. Husbands loving wives to the glory of God is a profound way to proclaim the gospel. Wives loving their husbands to the glory of God is a profound way to preach the relationship, if you will, of Jesus to his church. This is marriage for the Lord's sake. Let me give you a heading. Keeping your conduct honorable as three ways. A believing wife, exemplified by women of old, and thirdly, a believing husband. Peter gives instructions on keeping your conduct honorable as a believing wife. He also gives instructions on keeping your conduct honorable as a believing husband. Believing wife, verses 1 through 4. Believing husband, verse 7. But in the middle there, there, are, there is an example cited. A woman of old who is to be looked to as an example of one who was a faithful spouse. This was Sarah, of course. Who was Sarah's husband, kids? Who was Sarah's husband? Abraham. Very good. Uh, Sarah exemplified the believing or the honorable spouse in her relationship with Abraham, keeping your conduct honorable. Again, just a reminder of the context. In 2.13, Peter says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Prior to that, he said in verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter is saying, Prove the false accusations. Prove the bearing of false witness by an unbelieving worldview wrong by your honorable conduct. There are going to be things that the world presumes about you as a believer. Prove them wrong by loving your wife, husbands. Prove the unbelieving a worldview wrong, the claims of the unbelieving culture, the wicked society in which you live. Prove them wrong by bearing testimony to the legitimacy of the gospel by wives loving your husbands. It's a simple yet profound way to counter the false accusations. Peter is instructing the church, don't give the world around good reason to doubt the veracity of the gospel. Instead, by the conduct that you display in your marriage, give them reason to see displayed or give them reason to affirm the glory of God when they see real change taking place in real homes in those their neighbors who have committed their lives to Jesus Christ. The holy conduct, Peter says, of a believing wife models the gospel to the world and in some cases to as a yet unbelieving husband. Hence the imperative or the instruction or the commandment of 3.1. Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. That word likewise 
ties marriage to the other gospel opportunity situations or institutions, if you will. In other words, Peter has said to the servants of masters, model the gospel by submitting to your masters in a way that models Christ. He has also said, model submission to Christ by submitting as far as you can and as far as it's godly to civil institution of government. And likewise, within the institution of marriage, now he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. This is the imperative. Now note, um, historians note the cultural pressures of the time and what they might have represented for the wife who had come to faith in Jesus Christ and as as a result now was holding to a different religion than her husband. This would be a cultural rarity. This would be an extreme, unique, and counterculture case to be sure. A proof of this or evidence of this is comes from a Plutarch quote that I found in one of my study, study Bibles. So Plutarch said the following quote, A wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships. So what was submission culturally or uh, what was submission in marriage culturally understood at that time submitting to the gods of the husband but now the gospel has come to asia minor and people are repenting of their sin and, and women and men among them are confessing faith in jesus christ hence from pontius galatia bithynia cappadocia and asia a remnant is starting to be reaped for a harvest and thus necessarily you have different gods in different homes now. You have divided religious affections within homes. So what is a wife to do? Now, the cultural pressures of the time would have been uh, really intense, we can imagine. A uh, husband would not be too happy if his wife, all of a sudden, independently of his instruction and preferences, begins to worship differently than himself. This would perhaps be a real embarrassment for him, um, when he would interact with his other friends that day. And as such, we recognize the culture is probably a much more male-dominated culture than our day. Today, we have a more feminine or female-dominated culture. Nevertheless, we have ungodly and pagan cultural pressures as well. And I couldn't help but give you an illustration of that via a very profound Spice Girls song that was played during the dance at the wedding. I was listening to it. And these profound lyrics really came to the fore. I want to really, really, really want to zigzagga. And then it says, if you want to be my lover, you got to be with my friends. Yeah, I think Handel, Beethoven, Bach, and Mozart are probably turning over in their graves when they, uh, if they could witness you know, the cultural expressions in the pop songs of our day. Hence, but it is a worthy illustration, however trivial and stupid it sounds. Uh, basically, the woman uh, tends to exert a certain influence in the marriage relationship as modern feminism has kind of swung the pendulum the other way. Uh, suffice it to say that whatever the cultural pressures are, whether the influence of the pagan woman kind of directs the terms of the relationship, communicating to the man, if you want to be my lover, you got to get with my friends, 
or if it's the man in ancient times that says, if you want to be my wife, you got to worship my false gods. The gospel gives you sufficient grounds to stand in spite of cultural pressures. And that is the message. A believing wife and a believing husband has sufficient grounds, even in a marriage relationship, to stand confident in Christ and even to use the relationship, if you will, with her husband or the relationship with his wife as a powerful way to model the grace of the gospel of our Lord. A gospel modeled in marriage can prove more powerful than the cultural pressures of any era. A gospel modeled in the gracious, loving wife, in spite of her husband going around and doing his thing. Even at that time, you might imagine him visiting the temple of all the pagan gods where the pantheon of ancient Rome was attended by ritual, cultish, prostitution, worship, and so forth. Just the most despicable and depraved of circumstances was the cultural norm at that time. I mean, imagine the stark contrast of a godly woman uh, born again in Christ in terms of this, you know, wickedness and degeneration, nevertheless doing all that she can to remain with her husband to demonstrate the truth that while she was yet a sinner, Christ died in her place. And while her husband is yet a sinner, she is going to remain faithful as far as she can to him that provides an opportunity for the gospel to be proclaimed in the home. And this was the imperative, and the purpose uh, is very clear. It is, as I said, a gospel opportunity. Verse 2, or verse 1b, they, uh, they may be one, speaking of the unbelieving husband, if some, well, let me back up. Be subject to your own husbands, and then we have this so that clause, and this indicates purpose, right? So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So that some, or so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Earlier, I mentioned that we live in a feminine dominated culture, and feminism is one of the virtues celebrated of our day, and it infects the church as well. And some people lament that, oh, how can women have a voice in ministry and, you know, uh, denominations have apostatized to the point of proclaiming and ordaining women preachers and so forth. And they seek to make it a cultural norm. And they look at the scriptures and so forth. And they think that they just have passing application to that particular circumstance. But the Bible is very ordered. The Bible recognizes that God has ordained particular roles and complementary callings within his world and within relationships. And 1 Peter 3 tells us very clearly that the wife, that the uh, strong and godly woman has opportunity to model and to proclaim the gospel within her marriage. And it is to the shame of a culture that holds that any less valuable, important, significant, and powerful than the proclamation of the word from the pulpit. It's a different yet profound way to evidence the glories of Jesus Christ in a way that can influence a yet unbelieving spouse, in this case husband, to bow his knee before the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider the virtuous calling of a godly wife who has given herself to the Lord and the great privilege it is to model that for a yet unbelieving husband. And this is what Peter is saying. Marriage is redeemed, even a marriage that is as of yet unequally yoked. The calling of that relationship and, and institution is redeemed in Jesus Christ. So recognize this noble call. Recognize those who preceded you, he says to the women of his day, in exemplifying this great virtue and follow in their footsteps and model Christ. The purpose is that even if some do not obey, and notice a little play on words on the word word, 
It's a lot of words there. If some do not obey the word, namely the gospel proclaimed of Jesus Christ as dying for sinners and his in the hope of his cross for the washing away of sins, even if some husbands do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. It's incredible. One can almost hear in his mind's eye a husband in ancient times eventually testifying to his faith. I was resistant. I was prideful. I loved all my gods, not because I really believed they had that much power, but it gave me influence and standing, and it gave me acceptance and affirmation by my sophist peers or my, my Epicurean brothers up the street, and allowed me that sort of cred, uh, credentialed pass to articulate in the Areopagus, you know, where I stood with the great philosophers and so on. But what I couldn't get away from is every time I would go home and I would see my wife serving me faithfully, even though I violated on more than one occasion my marriage vows by entertaining temple prostitutes and so on and so forth. And God used the faithful modeling of the grace of Jesus Christ by my believing wife to bring my knees in repentance and faith in her God. And now we worship together as a godly family. I guarantee in some way, shape, or form, testimonies like this began to pop up in Asia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, and so forth. Why? Because the word of God does not return void. And as women of God in this time began to model the gospel call in their homes, I guarantee there were husbands who came to the faith as a result. And this was a powerful thing indeed. Their respectful and pure conduct of a godly wife, these two modifiers, emphasize higher motives. In other words, if a wife is only concerned about her health, her own well-being, and her happiness, and her fulfillment in marriage, then she would be completely discontent to be at such odds, even at a, at a fundamental spiritual level, with her husband. However, if she submits to the Lord and guards her motives and holds them accountable to that which is higher than herself, her preferences, and her emotions... That is, if she displays respectful and pure motives, namely, what? The glory of the Lord? Then she serves as a powerful tool in the hands of our God in, these, in cases like this to proclaim the gospel to a yet unbelieving spouse. Respectfully, uh, so she is respectful, she is pure, and as such, she is motivated by God's view of the holy institution of marriage in spite of the unworthiness of her spouse, so to speak, she does so out of worship to God, not as a personal, beneficial, you know, manipulation tactic, no, but instead to glorify Him. Don't underestimate the influence and the power of steadfast love modeled within the home. Stability, consistency, the praying faithful wife and mother and spouse, often you hear over time, has wins the day. This is how God uses his people sovereignly placed within marriage to accomplish his good purposes. This is marriage for the Lord's sake. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Be subject for the Lord's sake to marriage itself as an opportunity to follow Christ and for the purpose of convicting the unbelieving spouse of the truth of the gospel. Now, is the converse true? The context here is a believing wife and unbelieving spouse. Well, Paul would, uh, Paul, a correlated passage would be 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16, where Paul would affirm that, yes, in fact, the converse is true as well. There are times when a husband is the first to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
Now, in times like these, in a male-dominated culture, it was much more culturally likely that a woman might immediately follow. However, like I said before, the tables have turned uh, in many cases, and in a more feminine-dominated culture, it may not be that the woman is convinced and follows her husband. She may be predisposed to oppose him in that regard more so culturally than she would have been in that day. Nevertheless, the scriptures are clear that the believing spouse, by modeling patiently and consistently the truth of God's holy word, is a means that God uses to evangelize the home. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Peter 3 tell us as much. Now, how is a woman to do this? Well, Paul gives an example application. He does so by instructing women in a few practical things, specifically with respect to this concept of adornment. Notice verses 2 through 4. When they see, so when the unbelieving husband sees the respectful and pure conduct, and what is an example of respectful and pure conduct? Verse 3 continues. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, the putting on clothing. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. He goes on to say, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God adorned themselves of, of old. Again, there's an adorning question. That which you clothe yourself in, that which... Uh, you identify yourself with, let's say, that which you present yourself, it's a metaphor. He says, don't let this be, don't let the emphasis be on the external, the superficial, that which the, you see with the physical, the braiding of the hair, wearing of gold, putting on clothing, but let your primary adorning be, let the highest value where you derive your self-worth, the investment of your identity be placed in what is inside, the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So this is the application, the adornment of godly character, internal versus external. Would anyone argue with me that we live in a culture that emphasizes the external to the detriment of the internal? Uh, you would be a fool to argue such a thing, at least by you know, all of the evidence around us in culture. We live in a culture that emphasizes the things that we see with our eyes, the braiding of the hair, the wearing of gold, the presentation of self on a surface level, the making of first impressions. And if we become obsessed and our self-identity is wrapped up in those things, it comes at a great cost. It comes at a cost of minimizing and disregarding the power and priority of godly character on the inside. And we have a great conflict in our culture. On the one hand, we have modern feminism, as I mentioned before. On the other hand, we have the Me Too movement. Let me give you another negative illustration. Recently, there was a Super Bowl party, and there's two women, pop stars and so forth. One was well into her 50s. I don't know the age of the other one, 30s or something. And uh, they had this display of external beauty, so to speak, and very seductive and sensuous dancing and behavior and so forth. And the way that these cultural expressions, the trajectory of them, there's an increasing emphasis on these type of things. And I heard another pop star give accolades to these women, and she said that, oh, these powerful women and their display of femininity illustrates what we can do. And what, what was she saying? She was saying that she was celebrating the external as a way to, to seduce men by their base desires. In other words, women resent in their ungodliness the fact that they have less, perhaps, physical ability than men. 
But one thing that they can have power over man with is to, is to seduce them by playing to their base desires by presenting themselves with emphasis on the external. And then they can control them by man's sinful and sensual desires. So that's one definition of power. Is that a good one? Is modern feminism going to equal the balance of men versus women power by empowering women to seduce men by dressing in scandalous ways and cavorting on the stage to play to the lustful affections of a whole population of men? Gosh. And then on the other side of the coin, we have the Me Too movement, which is... Uh, has much more legitimacy and it recognizes that women have been exploited and objectified and considered valuable only for their externals and men have abused the relationship as such. So which is it, culture? You see the self-contradictory nature of sin? And do you see the error of, of leaning on the external at the expense of the internal that creates a society that is upside down, that tears families apart, that sows seeds of perversion and discord and corruption and lasciviousness and waywardness and fatherlessness and so on and so forth? This is the world in which we live. But what is the message that we need to hear in times like these? Well, the word of God remains eternally relevant and powerful, does it not? Peter says to us, let the adorning be the hidden person of the heart. May the virtues of godly character be celebrated once again. At least among the church, may they be held in high esteem. May we be counterculture in affirming that what is on the inside takes much more precedent over what is on the out and outside. And what is far more beautiful is the peaceable and quiet spirit of one who trusts and hopes in the Lord, who has reverence and respect and purity on the inside. What is a gentle and quiet spirit? Well, let me venture a definition from our context. A gentle and quiet spirit displayed by a godly woman could well be described, may I submit, as a peaceable demeanor, a confidence in the power, promises, and providence of God. A gentle and quiet spirit is a peaceable demeanor. It is a confidence in the power, the promises, and the providence of God. A woman who has a peaceable spirit, who is gentle and quiet and emphasizes, prioritizes the character of the heart, need not seek for power, promises, and provision elsewhere than the Lord. But she recognizes that therein is her self-worth, her identity, and her security. This Peter describes as an imperishable beauty. And when he uses that term, he associates us with words that he has said before directly to the gospel. 1 Peter 1.23, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. He says, for, quoting Isaiah, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. All beauty of the flesh, you could add here, you could, by extension and application, you could say is like grass. The glory of physical beauty. The glory of adorning of the external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, and the putting on of clothing, it withers. It withers like the grass of the field. Yet there is an imperishable beauty, a beauty that cannot uh, be erased, does not dim with age, does not change with trends. And it is a beauty that is described as an internal one, an imperishable one of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. So here we have quite the contrast, do we not? 
And this is how, wives, in the hearing of this message, how you keep your conduct honorable. You keep your conduct honorable as a believing wife, recognizing that you have gospel purpose in your home. And that you do so recognizing that the virtues on the inside, the true love of Christ, is the imperishable substance of beauty from which all the rest flows. Even the external can be informed by God's uh, values that are in Scripture, whereby modesty and a quiet and uh, peaceable spirit and so forth are displayed through one's choice of external adornment and so on. Major point number two. Keep your conduct honorable as exemplified by women of old. So there are women who gave us an example of these kinds of things. Notice verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. So here's an example of internal, gentle and quiet, spirit-like, imperishable beauty. The submission to the husband. Sarah obeyed Abram, calling him Lord, for example, in verse 6. A direct quote from our next passage or our next chapter in our Genesis series, Genesis 18:12. Sarah obeyed Abraham, Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Women of old were holy and hopeful. Those are two modifiers. Submitting to one's husband is not hoping in your husband. Rather, it's hoping in God. There is the, the question of where you turn for confidence, for resources, for security, for assurance is a question of hope. Women uh, who were in the situation of their husband as yet unbelieving, if they hoped in their marriage itself, they would have reason to despair. But if they put their hope in the Lord, they would have reason to be honorable and respectful to him, displaying that love that he didn't necessarily deserve and being consistent in their modeling of their uh, affections unto their as of yet unbelieving husband. Now, where would you find the resources to act consistently in a home like, like uh, such as a believing and unbelieving spouse might share? Well, it comes from hoping in God. This is marriage for the Lord's sake. If marriage is for our sake, if we look to the marriage union for personal fulfillment and satisfaction, and that's about it, and that's about all, then we will not have sufficient resources from which to draw to carry us through the trials. Now, there's a specific trial with reference here, and that is when your husband or wife, in this case husband, is as of yet unbelieving. But no one married for very long in the sound of my voice would deny that marriage doesn't come with a big assortment of trials. But where can you find the resources to, be, uh, to endure through those trials? Whether it be spiritual growth lagging behind in one spouse, or whether it be a deep financial hardship, or an untimely death, or a miscarriage, or whatever, a tragedy, or the loss of one's economic you know, uh, resources and so forth. What is the source by, whereby we can weather in our marriages, storms and trials? Well, it's when hope is placed in the Lord, hoping in God. And this was exemplified by one like Sarah in the Old Covenant. Marriage is for the Lord's sake, first and foremost. Hoping in the relationship may lead to despair, but hoping in Christ gives you grace and endurance in spite of difficult times. It may seem beyond hope, in fact, if you just judge the circumstances on their surface. However, one who hopes in God recognizes that when they were saved, a miracle of spiritual rebirth took place. 
Cannot God work the same miracle in restoring a marriage? He, he certainly can. Here's an example that Peter gives. Remember Sarah's relationship to Abraham. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. We'll set aside her children and, and, and not fearing for a moment as related concepts and just recall the experience or the testimony of Abraham and Sarah. Why was Sarah chosen as an example? Well, it could be because she's the sort of quintessential or she's a classic example of a sojourner wife. So kids, we need a definition. What is a sojourner? A traveler. A traveler. That's right. A sojourner or an exile is someone who is far from home. And Peter is using this framework to address the context of these early believers. You may feel like a sojourner, a traveler. You're far from home or an exile. You're outside of your final residence or you're distant from your final residence. Well, who can relate to this kind of situation? Well, certainly Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, where did they come from? Well, an established city, city of man, as we've identified principally. And in that city of Ur and later Haran, Peter, or I'm sorry, uh, Abraham dwelt in a place of relative humanistic security. All of the comforts, convenience, and securities of that environment would well establish, I would think, a comfortable existence for him, his wife, and his children. But now the Lord visits him in that place and says, I am going to take you on a journey. A man who was a city dweller is going to become a sojourner, a traveler. In fact, he will never have a fixed place to live for the rest of his days, only by faith from now on. The only piece of land that Abraham bought later that we recognize in Scripture was a burial plot for his beloved bride, Sarah. But Sarah, in faith, followed her husband from that place of relative security by man's standards to a calling of being a sojourner for the Lord's sake, to a place that he would yet disclose on the way. And as such, you can imagine all the circumstances that might have frightened Sarah. You are her children, the scripture says, if you don't fear anything that is frightening. Think of Sarah's experience. How many times would you battle fear in that scenario? You're traveling to a distant land. You don't speak the language of your neighbors. There are roving bands that would come and like to steal your flocks or steal you. You're in an area where you don't know if you'll be welcomed when you arrive. Your husband has to go forth and try to forge alliances in a completely foreign culture. You're, uh, and, and even though your flocks are growing and God is blessing you and so forth, sometimes you have to flee to like Egypt or over here with King Abimelech. And even your husband is freaked out so much that in a momentary lapse of covenant faithfulness, he passes you off as his sister, telling a white lie to try to spare you. And you can imagine how Sarah would have been petrified in those circumstances. Nevertheless, Hebrews 11 celebrates both Abraham and Sarah. I think the only example where husband and wife are included in tandem there, Hebrews 11, 8 through 19, she and Abraham are held out as examples of faith. God called uh, Sarah to a life of sojourning out of a civilized society to endure for the Lord's sake, by faith, a life that is fraught with challenges, trials, and difficulties at every turn. And you are her children, Wives who are called also in your marriages to go through difficulties if you follow in her footsteps. What does it mean to be the children of Sarah? Well, it's a question of legacy, is it not? So you carry forth the legacy of Sarah if you recognize that she faithfully hoped in the Lord, even though that hope in the Lord called her to join with her husband 
and submitting to a life of wandering, sojourning, traveling unto a land yet uh, undisclosed that would be revealed in time, leaving the comfortable existence behind. And this is why Sarah, I suggest, is chosen, because she is such a good example of one who followed the Lord, even though there was so much uncertainty in the natural realm that attended her decision. Another incredible example, perhaps my favorite in this regard, is Abigail and David. We won't touch on this one directly, but study at a later time. As an example of a godly woman who went before modeling this kind of behavior, 1 Samuel 25, the whole chapter. There, a woman named Abigail is, a fa- is faithful. I guess I have to turn there just to give you one verse to set the tone. She is married to a real scoundrel. Um, Nabal is his name. And I'll just give you a little summary. Nabal does not recognize the Lord's anointed, namely David, and is very rude and does not accommodate him in his need. David is upset with Nabal's insolence, and he decides to destroy him in a fit of rage. But his wife at the time, Abigail, will intervene. It says, the scriptures say of her, Samuel 25, 3, 1 Samuel, Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. So you have a contrast there, a woman who's discerning and beautiful. uh, Beauty, we can assume the hidden person of the heart, the gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of the Lord. We see evidence of her godly character, nevertheless. She is a beautiful woman, and she is discerning, and her husband, on the other hand, is harsh and badly behaved. Now, what happens is David, as a consequence, decides to kill Nabal, but he does not have warrant in God's law to take such action. Abigail intercedes. Now, she doesn't do so for her husband primarily, first and foremost, but she does so for the Lord's sake. She comes out and she intercepts David on the way to kill her husband and says, please, my Lord, do not do this act. If you do so, you will be guilty. There will be blood guilt upon your hands. And so she says, let the punishment be upon me. And she offers herself an intercession to stand in the way to preserve God's purposes from, uh, uh, for his anointed in David so that he does not commit a sin that would bring blood guilt on his head. This is an incredible example of a woman of old who exemplified honorable conduct, who conducted her marriage or who conducted herself within the boundaries of marriage for the Lord's sake. Now, as you recall, Abraham, uh, he commended uh, Abigail for her godliness and said on account of that intercession, he would not kill her husband. The Lord did the job for him. Nabal was, quick, was killed by God's hand, and then Abigail became David's wife. So literally what Abigail did is she interceded on behalf of God's glory for the, uh, for, uh, on behalf of God's glory for the integrity of her future husband, an amazing woman. We live again, I keep using these examples by contrast, we live in a culture that tells us absolutely falsely that the Bible denigrates women. No way. According to our culture today, there's a view of women that is it's skewed, is perverse, and so forth. It's all mixed up. It does not hold valuable 
and powerful, or it does not hold the value and power of a godly woman in the right categories. Therefore, it thinks that the Bible has a low view of women. Not so. Think of the case of Abigail who interceded and, and uh, influenced the integrity of the anointed king. And you will find an example of a strong woman. Look to these examples in scripture. We are at the abortion clinic recently and God gave my daughter Vera Grace to confront one of the women who supports women going in. We call them death escorts. They call themselves escorts. And so what they do is they try to shield the women from the appeals of the pro-lifers there to go in and uh, to murder their child. And my daughter approached one of them and said, you know, you were a child one day and your mother did not abort you. How can you stand for this? And she said to that woman that God has a purpose for her and it is not this. Why is that woman there? I guarantee you she's there because she thinks that abortion is empowering to women. She has a false view of what female strength and empowerment is. And what are the consequences of that perverted view? The death of little baby girls. Little baby innocent women are killed because the world has the wrong view of what a strong and noble woman is. That woman got down on one knee, she removed her COVID mask, and she said to my daughter, we disagree on many things, but what you did was very brave. Little girls should have a big voice. Now, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but a big voice is, but the voice that is worthy of listening to is the voice of God's law in scripture. And you better believe that God's law on the lips of a babe or a little one or a child has power, nobility, and authority. Meanwhile, the message, you know, find your voice and proclaim your truth and this subjective notion and this postmodern era of women empowerment and so on and so forth, it leads to death. The wages of sin is death. So parents, if you want to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and ladies, if you want a biblical view of what a noble and strong woman is, go to Sarah, your hero. Go to Abigail, your hero in scripture, and learn from them. Powerful and strong women who were godly and moved the hearts of kings by God's grace, but did so according to God's terms. These are the exemplary uh, uh, ones who have gone before, women of faith that Peter holds out by way of example. Now, lest the men escape application in this regard, Peter closes with a verse addressing us, husbands in the room. And this is 1 Peter 3, 7. This is our final point. Keeping your conduct honorable as a believing husband. We are called to honorable conduct as well. Likewise, so what is the uh, linking word there? Likewise, well, God has a calling for men to submit to the terms of marriage relationship in a way that is respectful, in a way that is pure and holy, pure, respectful conduct, holy, God-honoring relationship. Husbands are called to have or to apply the same terms in relationship to their wives. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Guys, we only get one verse here, 
but don't mistake how densely packed the truth is in verse 7. Here in this compressed way, we also have an imperative, an instruction. We are to show honor to our wives. And David is a good example, incidentally, in his relationship or with respect to Abigail. David honors Abigail in 1 Samuel 25, and he celebrates her uh, he celebrates her action in this regard. And just, just for an example for us, you know, someone, a, a good example of this in the past, perhaps we can recognize this as well. It says in verse Samuel 25, verse 32, And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt, and from avenging myself with my own hand. Husbands in the room, have you ever blessed your wife for ways that she has influenced you toward godliness? Blessed are you, my wife, because by your godly example, I have been influenced to love my Lord all the more. Blessed is your discretion, the wisdom that God has given you. Thank you for your consistent faithfulness in raising our children to know you. In this, you know, men in this congregation... We have more to bless our women by, I mean, say this a little bit biased, you know, because I love you guys so much and, and see evidence of godliness in your home so much. But many of the women in this congregation are endeavoring to sacrificially teach their own children by making sacrifices and entering into homeschool and everything else, working hard to give to their children a foundation and a worldview in godliness with respect to their education. This is something that husbands, if your wife has taken on this duty alongside you, I hope that we are as supportive as we possibly can be. Not only helping her in that regard, but communicating what a blessing that is for us. This is one way that we can follow in David's footsteps and obey the imperative by showing honor to our wives that the record of Scripture exemplifies in this regard. We should affirm these values of faithful conduct and affirming love and the gentle and quiet spirit and imperishable beauty that our, li- that our wives display. And we should do so without reserve as God grants us opportunity to be a blessing to our wives. We are to show honor to them. And this honor is based on an understanding. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. And what do we understand about women and God's ordination for marriage? God's establishment of this relationship. What do we understand about it that influences the honor that we show? Well, we understand three things. That the woman is a weaker vessel. That she is an heir with us in the grace of life and that she is connected to our prayer life. We understand, uh, men, if we are thinking clearly, that women is deser- a woman are, is deserving of honor, a wife is deserving of our expressing godliness and love towards her inasmuch as she is, in Peter's words, a weaker vessel. That is to say, our wife, in the way that she's constructed, is, has strengths in other areas and weaknesses, in others. Physical strength is an obvious one. Men are able to endure, generally speaking, more physical, you know, uh, things than a wife can. And emotions sometimes play into it as well. Sometimes uh, women, because they are wired to nurture, uh, as a, generally speaking, more so than us guys, 
there might be some weaknesses in that area as well. Nevertheless, this notion of weaker vessel is not to be considered a slight and is not a negative in the least. Rather, it's a difference in calling. It's something distinct. If there is a weaker vessel in your china cabinet, it's the one that is most treasured, usually is the most valuable and the one best protected. It's the one you keep behind lock and key. It's the one that you show off when people visit. The weaker vessel as a finely crafted, you know, heirloom, fine piece of china. That's a better way of understanding the, women, the woman in regard to God's order within the Christian home. And so as we understand this, that God has ordained that we are to come alongside as a strength, as a stability, as a foundation, as a rock for her, as a consistent source of biblical um, encouragement and gospel confidence, then it allows her to flourish. It sets her apart. It holds her up as honorable. Within the china cabinet of a godly man's affirmation of a, a wife, who is seeking to honor the Lord, she is displayed in her glory the way God has designed her to be, though she may be the weaker vessel, so to speak. Secondly, we understand that she is a joint heir with us of the grace of life, that God has ordained in a godly home that the promises of hope and salvation are hers and ours. That is to say, Jesus died to purchase for her eternal life the same way he died to purchase eternal life for you. So how ought that to affect your relationship with your wife? You are heirs together of his grace. Finally, that your prayers may not be hindered. Prayers in two senses, yes, that directly our relationship with our wife affects our relationship with the Lord. And chances are, if our relationship is stressed due to our own sin with our wife, it will affect our spiritual life and it will affect our connection with the Lord to be sure. But in a healthy marriage, there are prayers that we ought to stand beside our wife, uh, alongside our life with. And it's so hard to pray with someone in agreement and, and so on and so forth if there's tension and if there's disrespect between the parties. Hence, our prayers and our prayers together are affected by the health of our relationship with our spouses. And as we grow in these areas, bringing this message to a close, we model the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is Peter's main point. This is a way in our homes that we return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. That was the last verse in chapter 2. Remember? There are no chapter divisions, of course, in the original writing. These points are connected. It says, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So you could frame it like this. What is a way that homes return, or what is the pathway back to the shepherd and overseer of your souls within the Christian home. Well, it's honor, mutual honor between wives and husbands. Wives who are in submission to the godly position that God has given their husband. And husbands who affirm her in her godliness and in her imperishable beauty as she seeks to grow in her role in Christ. And as this mutual affirming relationship grows, so does our effectiveness in the kingdom of God. And so does our prayer life. And so does the spiritual quality of, in fact, the whole church and even the foundation of a nation. Now, we've had a number of examples of individual application in this message. And I think it's appropriate given the context. But so, uh, don't forget that if there is going to be any hope for peace and revival and reconstruction in this land, it will begin when homes take seriously the admonition of 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. This is a framework 
This is a blueprint for my new word term, systemic revival. That's what I'm praying for, systemic revival, and it will not happen outside of the home being reformed, the home returning to a godly picture of the gospel. You just can't separate the gospel from the home. We are indeed in the family of God. Christ is our bridegroom. We are his bride. We are adopted sons and daughters. We are heirs. All the language, redemptive language of scripture is directly tied to family. As the family goes, so does the understanding and the quality of the gospel modeled within the character and culture of a society. The two go hand in hand. Greater gospel, stronger homes. More powerful message of truth in Christ alone, more powerful and binding relationships and assurance and security and growth and sanctification between a husband, wife, and the nurture and admonition of their children. Now this is affirmed, as I mentioned, in the introduction of this message by the meta-narrative, that is the big story of Scripture. Turning closing to Revelation 19, let us transition to communion. At the beginning of the Scriptures, Adam and Eve are married. At the close of the Scriptures, Christ the bridegroom is married, so to speak, with his bride, the church. The picture of marriage gives way to its fulfillment in glory. And there's a snapshot, there's a sneak peek as to the glory of this reunion in Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Listen. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You see the connection? Even in 1 Peter 3, we have adornment language here again. We have the fine linen, this picture of adornment, which is the righteousness of Christ. We have a, celebra- we have a, a cause for celebration. As, as such, there is a marriage supper, a festive gathering that we anticipate. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The true words of God declare to us that our marriages ought to be a reflection of a glorious marriage yet to come. Christ has died to purchase by the cost of his own blood himself a bride. And the very payment for him to redeem his bride is displayed before us at the communion table today. And the message of hope in Jesus Christ is that this reunion is so glorious that all sin, all corruption will one day be done away with. This passage of scripture in Revelation goes on to say that every tear, every vestige of sin, every corruptible influence of the fall will be washed away until all that remains is the glorious reality of redeemed covenant between bride and groom, so to speak, Christ and his church. This is a vision, this is a standard whereby our marriages, that our marriages are called to reflect. And as we fall short in that area, let the communion table remind you of the glorious hope of that wedding in heaven one day, and let it move you to repent of sins that stand in the way of your honorable conduct, even in your own home, that you might capitalize on that opportunity to proclaim, to share, to stand on, to model the gospel to your spouse and to an unbelieving world. Just one more example, application of the Lord's table. Remember and proclaim the power of the gospel at communion today in your heart as you take it. But then, remember and proclaim the power of the gospel, all believing spouses, to your, if you're in the, sound of the, or in the hearing of this message, if you have an unbelieving spouse or spouse whose spirituality is lagging behind, I beg you to model the gospel to them as well. 
It's a glorious opportunity in all that Christ might be glorified and we, his church, might be sanctified. Let us transition in prayer. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this moment, these moments that we share together to behold the message of your holy scriptures and to behold your word displayed before us in these ordinances. As we partake of the broken body, Lord, remind us that Jesus' blood, body was broken for us. As we partake of the cup, remind us that his blood was spilled on our behalf. And within this act of redemption is the power not only to save our souls, but to, re to revive and to rebuild and to reform our lives and even our nation. God, I pray today as we approach your table that we would do so recognizing the power that is represented here and that it might produce fruit to the praise of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.